Well, if you are a parent, I really hope that you're planning on um, being there with us for this Parenting with Purpose conference. As Phil just said in there, I'm so excited about them coming out. Um, One of the key things that we do, first of all, just as a church, is that we invest the gospel in the kids that God has entrusted to this church family. And then for those of us as parents, man, I, I know all of us who are parents, we, we want our kids to be educated and we want our kids to get good jobs. And most of us are like, oh, we want our kids to get married and have successful marriages and, and, and have kids of their own and move on with that. All of that stuff pales in comparison to the importance of getting the gospel to our kids and having them love Jesus. And one of the things, I, I read the book that, um, that Phil and Diane wrote. Some of you also have, have grabbed that since the thing I love about it is they are not about sort of gimmicks or tricks or here's a parenting hack that you have. This whole conference is going to be practical, but at the center of it is the gospel, is that our key job as parents is to point our kids to Jesus. Um, So, you know, some of you, you're just starting off in the parenting thing. What better time to make sure you really get your thoughts aligned in what God's calling is for you? Um, and some of you are maybe at my stage where you're like, all right, the, the kids are kind of the grade school, high school years. Some of you, your kids are a little bit older and you might think, all right, we, we've already kind of done what we've done. It is not true. There's, in fact, there's going to be great breakout sessions about kids that are older and even about adult children and continuing to interact. Um, so whether it's on the app, you can sign up on the app. In fact, at any point during the sermon, if I see anybody on their phone, I'm just going to assume they're signing up for the parenting conference <laughs> on there. Um, You can sign up at the next step tables right afterwards. We are so excited about this. This is one of the things that basically every pastor on staff is part of this because we think it's that important. Um, So really excited about that and really excited to see what God does as we gather for that time. Um, And with that said, this morning we start the first of a two-week series that's called Risk Reward. And so I want to invite you right now, if you have a Bible, Open up to Matthew chapter 19. Um, I know some of you use your phones as a Bible. That's the other thing I'm going to assume that you're doing if I see you on your phone. So you can pull out your phone. You can get to Matthew 19. If you're not familiar with the Bible, but you have one, then Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. And we're going to read a story from Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. And if you don't have a Bible on you, you can look up on the screen and follow along as I read our passage. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus said to the disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. This is God's Word. I want to ask you a question as we get started into this. In fact, I want you to think right now about the biggest risk you've ever taken in your life. Just take a moment. Maybe at some point you moved across the country for a job that you weren't sure that it was going to work out. Maybe for some of you at some point you entered into an adoption process that felt very risky and uncertain. Um, Maybe for some of you risk is a little bit lower level and you just kind of, you feel like you're a little bit of a nervous person. So there's a lot of things that feel risky. I mean, there's a lot of things that we do in life that are risky. How many of you have ever been on an airplane before? A couple hundred years ago, that would have seemed like a really big deal. Many of us shrug that off now, but, but just think about it. That's a risk. Getting on an airplane is a risk, but most of us do it on, on at least a somewhat regular basis because of the payoff. And the payoff is that you get to go visit friends or you get to go see a new place much quicker and much more efficiently than if you did it by some other travel method. The reason we take risks is because the reward is worth it. Now, I just asked who's ever gotten into an airplane. Who's ever jumped out of an airplane? All right, there's a few of you here. Just by the way, I don't get that at all. (laughs) When I'm in an airplane, I want to stay in the airplane. But I know this is a real thing, that for some of you, there's that excitement and that thrill to go skydiving, or maybe some of you were in the military, which kudos to you. But some of you were like, I wasn't in the military. I wanted to jump out of an airplane. And you knew it was risky. They, they told you it was really safe, which is relatively safe considering what you're doing. But there still is a risk going on. But at some point, you said, you know what? The risk is going to be worth it. The payoff makes it worth it because of the thrill that I'm going to get and the exhilaration of doing something that risky and that scary and because of the video and the pictures and all of that. Somehow, with each risk that we take, we look at the payoff and we decide that it's going to be worth it. That's true of every risk, and that leads us to sometimes take risks and sometimes to play it safe. And what we see in this story, the story that's usually called the story of the rich young ruler, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story, and if you compile them together, you find out that he's young, he's rich, and he's a ruler. What we see in this story is not only a story about money, which it clearly is about money, But we also have a story about Jesus calling a man to take a risk and what went into the process of leading him to make his decision. 
as we get ready to walk back through this passage in a little bit more detail, let me just tell you, we're going to see two significant things in this passage that Jesus does. The first is that we're going to see Jesus give a very sobering warning to all of us. And the second is that we are going to see Jesus give a staggering promise to all of us, a sobering warning and a staggering promise. And so let's start walking through this passage. We start in verse 16 with a question. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now let's just start on the surface. Pretty good question to ask Jesus, right? This seems good. This seems like the question everybody should be asking Jesus. This seems like a softball to Jesus that he can just hit out of the park. What must I do to get eternal life? In fact, if you have been praying through people that you're working with or your neighbors and saying, I, I want to talk to them about the gospel, I want to lead them to faith in Jesus, if one of them came up to you with this question, you'd be rejoicing. This is the great question. What must I do to get eternal life? But I, I want to show you something because this question in some ways is the, is the center point that they keep coming back to through all the discussion that happens. And in order to understand, the man is not simply saying, how do I get to heaven when I die? That may be included, but eternal life is much broader and richer than just, will I go to heaven when I die. In fact, let, let me put something up here real quick that just illustrates how this passage unfolds in this whole question of what do I need to do, need to, do to get eternal life. Verse 17, Jesus comes back to him to answer the question to say, if you want to enter life. Eternal life is not just something you get, it's something that you enter into. In verse 21, Jesus comes back to the man and says, if you want to be perfect, which is weird for us because the word perfect, we usually think of perfect as being flawless. But for the Jews, and, and even this being written in Greek, often perfection had to do with the idea of being complete. Right before this, the man asked Jesus, what do I still lack? And Jesus isn't saying, hey, you're super morally good, but if you want to be perfect, what he's saying is, if you want to have completion for that lack in you, getting eternal life it's about entering into something. It's about being made complete. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus talks about the whole idea of eternal life being entering into the kingdom of heaven or entering into the kingdom of God, which reminds us of the reality that eternal life is not just something that we're looking forward to in the future. It's not just the idea that we live forever, even though that's a part of it. It's the idea that we are entering into a new realm where God is the king. That means we're experiencing His presence and guidance now. That means we're experiencing the rewards of walking closely with Him now. It's a realm that we enter into where God is the King, even though our world doesn't live as if God is the King. Verse 25, the disciples refer to the whole idea of eternal life as being saved. What does this mean about being saved? When we're talking about being saved, we're not, just being talk we're not just talking about something that affects us way in the future. We're talking about the idea that right now we're living in eternal life. Right now we're living as citizens of the kingdom of God. Right now we've been saved. And finally in verse 29, Jesus talks about eternal life as something to be inherited. And the reason I start off with this is because in this passage, what we're not just talking about is the answer to a question about what it means to make sure I stamp my ticket to heaven when I die. 
but what it means to live in the realm and reality of God, both now and of hope for the future. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus' answer at first seems a little bit coy. It seems a little bit strange because in verse 17, Jesus starts by kicking a question back to him. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Now, I know some of you have deep anxiety when I ask questions, but I promise this is not a trick question. Who is the one who is good? God. Good job. See, I'm not trying to trick you. God is the one that's good. This seems like a strange move by Jesus. Jesus is sort of poking back at him. Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who's good, and that's God. Here's why Jesus is doing this. There was an assumption in the question that the man asked. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? He's assuming that in order to enter into the realm of eternal life, he's got to do some good thing. And Jesus just gives a quick reminder, there's only one who's good. If you think you're capable of doing some good thing that's going to make you enter into eternal life, good luck with that. There's only one who's truly good. And then Jesus says something that's a little bit mystifying to us. He then says to the man, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, here's the deal. Just imagine a scenario. If you were thinking of those coworkers that you've been praying for and you want to lead them to faith in Jesus, and one of them comes up to you and says, hey, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And you say to them, keep the commandments. If one of the pastors was looking over your shoulder, they'd be like, no, 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 no. It's not the right answer. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. And so this answer by Jesus seems like the wrong answer. But here's what appears to be going on. Jesus seems to be saying to this man, all right, you think you can do some good thing to get eternal life? I'm going to give you the opportunity to try. Go ahead and keep the commandments. And the man wants to take him up on his offer. So the man says, which ones? And Jesus starts naming off some of the Ten Commandments. He he names off five out of the Ten Commandments. Shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, give false testimony, which is the one that has to do with lying. Honor your father and mother. And then he sums it up with something that's not part of the Ten Commandments, but an Old Testament command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus gives a quick summary. By the way, the, the Ten Commandments typically are split into two groups. And some of the commandments have to do more directly with our relationship with God. You know, don't make a graven image. Don't use the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then other ones have to do with our relationship with other people. And you can see with all five of the ones he names and with the summary statement, it all has to do with our relationships with other people. First John, in First John, the Apostle John reminds us that you can't say you love God without loving your neighbor. And Jesus points a man back towards that there. He's like, all right, you want to know the commands? Here's the commands. He's just summarizing them. He's not trying to leave things out. And then the man responds in verse 20 by saying, all these I have kept. Now, this is the point where some of us might start to think, this guy is delusional. This guy is saying to Jesus, oh, as far as sin and obedience, I've done it all. But the man is not here saying, I've never sinned. In fact, I want to say, I don't see anything in this entire passage that points towards the man not being 100% sincere. And one of the reasons why I think he's 100% sincere is because what he says at the end of verse 20, he says, what do I still lack? 
I don't think he's trying to game Jesus here for the inside track. I think this man is saying, I've been an observant Jew. He probably hasn't murdered someone. He probably hasn't committed adultery. He's not looking at these and saying, I'm perfect. He's saying, yeah, I know the commands. I've lived an observant life. I've looked to live as moral as I can based on the commands that God has given, but I know I'm still lacking something. I know that there's something that I'm missing. Any of you ever felt that way before? You probably have. In fact, if you're a Christian, that's probably one of the things that was instrumental in you coming to faith in Jesus. And maybe you looked at your life and said, I can't complain about my health or finances. Things seem pretty good. In fact, I feel like I should be really content and I feel like I should be really satisfied, but I know I'm lacking something. I know I'm missing something. And you can almost hear it in this man. He's, he's not trying to cast off the commandments, but he's like, there's something that's not right. There's something that's still lacking inside of me. In fact, maybe some of you are in here today, and this is exactly how you feel, and this is why you showed up this morning. And if you did, keep listening because we're going to get to the heart of the answer to this question. What do I still lack? Verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, once again, this seems like the wrong answer to the question. If somebody came up to you and said, how do I get saved? And you said, go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor. We say, no, it's not the right answer. Faith in Jesus is still the right answer. But Jesus is getting very personal with this man. He's getting very specific. When he says, what do I lack? He says, here's what you lack. And he zeroes in on his relationship with money. We find out later on he had great wealth. Jesus had insight into this. And what Jesus is doing here is he's not given a command to every person in every situation. But what he is doing is he's giving a very specific command that is living out the idea that if you are going to become a disciple of Jesus, that means you hold nothing back. Luke chapter 14, Jesus talks about the idea, if anybody loves father or mother more than me, can't be my disciple. If anybody loves their home, if anybody loves their job, if anybody loves their friends more than they love me, you can't be my disciple. And it's not that Jesus is saying, I won't allow it. It's that Jesus is saying, it won't work. You can't have divided allegiance. It's a kind of scary verse in a way, because it seems like Jesus is not working incredibly hard to get this guy into the kingdom. It seems like he's putting up roadblocks. Um, I know football's on our minds. You guys, you guys know the Super Bowls today, right? All right. I just wanted to make sure. Um, the, the, it was probably a couple weeks ago, there was an interview that came out with the Packers quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. Um, some of you might have seen it. And uh, I didn't know any of this stuff about him until I saw the interview, but apparently he grew up in a very devout Christian home and, and had identified as a Christian. And the interview was about why he no longer considers himself to be a Christian. Um, and, and it was sad, and he talked about different things, and, and some of the things he talked about, are they're just the normal doubts and difficulties that all of us wrestle with. In fact, one of the big doubts and difficulties that he talked about wrestling with is the reality of hell. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but... Have you ever, as a Christian, struggled with the reality of hell? And I, I do every time I think about it. This is not, if you're sitting there and saying, well, I'm not allowed to have a hard time with hell, that, that, that's crazy. Of course you are. 
But what he basically said is, I just don't think that I can believe in a God who wants to send most people to hell. And it's not that he was wrong about struggling with the reality of hell, but he was wrong about a very specific part of his statement. The part that said, God wants to send a whole bunch of people to hell. I want you just to look closely at these two verses that are up on the screen or if you're looking down at your Bible. Between Jesus and the rich young ruler, who severs the relationship? It's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't look at the man and say, I don't want nothing to do with you, I'm walking away. Jesus pinpoints what needs to happen for this man to enter into eternal life. In fact, I I told you, Luke and Mark both tell this story. Mark, right before the statement where Jesus says, sell all your stuff, Mark says, Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Jesus was willing to expose what was going to keep this man from eternal life instead of just letting him continue in his lack. God wants people to avoid hell and to experience eternal life so desperately that this conversation could even happen. The Son of God took on flesh to die for our sins because God is a God who wants people to be rescued from death and brought into the kingdom. Jesus desperately wants this for this man so badly that he loves him enough to tell him the truth, to say, in order to enter into the kingdom, you're going to have to be willing to leave behind all your riches. Sell it all, give the money to the poor, come follow me. And of course, verse 22 says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And in some ways, you could look at this passage and you could say, all right, all right but, but we could probably broaden this out um, than, than just money. Maybe this passage isn't just about money. This is just a passage about how we each have something that could be holding us back. Um, so for you, maybe, maybe the deal is that Jesus would come to you and say, hey, unless you're willing to lose all your friends for me, you can't really follow. Unless you're willing to leave that job behind and go into a different career, you're not, willing to fo- you're not going to be able to follow. And, and all that would be true, but we'd be making a mistake if we didn't recognize that this passage is centering in on money and riches specifically because of what Jesus says when he starts to de- de- debrief with his disciples. Verse 23 Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel, the biggest domesticated animal in the Middle East, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus uses a ridiculous, exaggerated statement to make a profound point. Jesus isn't just saying it's hard if you have a lot of friends. He's zeroing in on money and saying for the rich, it's hard to get into the kingdom. And and even on the surface, we could probably figure out, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Because if Jesus is saying to all of us, if you're gonna be my disciple, I am Lord over everything. I'm Lord over your friendships. I'm Lord over your career. I'm Lord over your family. I'm Lord over all your money. If Jesus comes to you with that, and you have two dollars to your name, and Jesus says, I need to be Lord over all of your money, you'll probably think, why not? I got two bucks. What's the most I could lose? If you have two billion dollars, 
and Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, I'm going to be in charge of all of your money, that's a lot to lose. It's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom because the rich stand to lose a lot. And by the way, all of us in this room are rich. Some of you are like, no, I'm not rich. I'm not Bill Gates. I'm not Elon Musk. All right, that's fine. More, the majority of people in the world would look at the life that you're living right now, and to them, that would be like winning the lottery. The things that we have, the comfort that we experience, the, the, the dispensable income that we have, the warm showers, the transportation, we are rich, which means for all of us in this room, it's hard for us to enter the kingdom. And you might think, well, but I already put my faith in Jesus. I already am in the kingdom. All right, all right that's fine. What this then means is that it's going to be hard for you to truly walk in closeness with Jesus because your money is going to make it difficult. It has a big pull on our hearts. In fact, this is so significant that look at the debrief that continues to happen afterwards. In verse 25, it says, And the disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus responds by saying, With man, this is impossible but with God, all things are possible. So let me actually give you some encouragement because this might be, start to feel really heavy. So let me give you a little bit of encouragement. If you're hearing this right now and you're saying, you know what, if I was the, if I was the rich young ruler, I don't know if I would have said yes. I, I don't know if I could do that. If, if God came to me right now and just as clear as I could be, he was saying, sell all your stuff, give it to the poor. I don't know if I'd say yes. In fact, if God just moves really clearly and starts telling me, give more to the ministry of the local church, start giving more of your income, start giving 10%, 15%, I don't know if I'd say yes. If that's your response right now, this word from Jesus is, also, is, is actually great comfort because you might be looking at it right now and saying, I don't think it's possible. I, I don't think that I could. With you, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. God is able to melt the hard heart. God is able to give the courage to do what you're thinking right now. I couldn't do that. You're probably right. You couldn't do that. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But up to this point, what we've got in this passage is a pretty sobering warning. And the sobering warning is this. Devotion to temporary riches can cause us to lose out on eternal riches. This isn't just one of many issues. This means that we got to look at our relationship with money and we got to say, how do I actively live in a way that I'm making sure that my money, not just what I devote to giving, but all of my money belongs to the Lord. I want to say that because some people, and some of you, you may have grown up in an environment where it was like, all right, 10%. 10% goes to the Lord. And really what you took away from that was um, 10% goes to the Lord and 90% is mine. And you're like, all right, 90, 10, I can live with that. All right, good. 10% belongs to the Lord. The rest belongs to me. That's not what Jesus is saying. It all belongs to him. And by the way, if you do that kind of 10, 90 thing, what you end up with is you end up with confusion because then you, you're sort of like, all right, well, uh, we, we decided to, to, to host this um, gathering at our house and, and so that our neighbors can hear the gospel and we're putting money into that. Is that money for the Lord or is that money for us? And you tr start to try to figure that out. You know what? It all belongs to the Lord. 
And so let, let me just even share, you know, Karina and I are both very grateful for our parents because they, they really modeled generosity to us. Um, and so the way, the way that we've handled this is we were doing this even before we got married, but since we've been married, we've always said, you know what, we're not going to get to the end of the month and get to the end of the paychecks and say, what's left over, we'll give that to the Lord. We said, you know what, 10% right at the top automatically goes, not just in some general way to the Lord, but that goes to the local church. And some of you right now are like, all right, I see why this is happening. You get paid by our offerings. All right, there's no way to get away from that conflict of interest. I'm not even going to try to. But let me say this. Some of you might be thinking, of course he thinks it should go to the local church. He's a pastor. What I want to say is the reason why I am a pastor is because I am passionate about the local church because the local church is the center of what God is doing in the world. God is using rulers, God is using evangelists, God is using parachurch ministries, all that is great. The center of what God is doing in the world is the local church. So, so we do give extra, we do give to missionaries and some parachurch organizations and sometimes to individuals who are in need. We, we do all that kind of stuff. But we say, you know, right off the bat, 10% is what we're giving. It's not because we look at 10% and say that's a biblical mandate. We really don't. But it has some precedence. In the Old Testament, the Jews were required to give 10% to the religious aspects of their lives. So it's not a random number. And also, I'll just say this on a practical level. Two things that, that are great about this on a practical level. It's easy to calculate. Just like, all right, 10%, I can figure that out. It's easy to calculate. And also, it's enough that you feel it. It's enough that you notice it. It's enough that it makes you have to adjust the way that you're living to say, am I really that devoted to my giving? If you want to loosen the strings of how tightly your heart is connected to your money, the absolute starting point is to begin giving generously to what God is doing. It's that reminder it all belongs to Him. And it's the way to combat this warning from Jesus that temporary riches can cause us to lose out on eternal riches. Because, you know, we could look at the rich young ruler and we could say he missed out because he was playing it safe. Jesus said, sell all your stuff. And he said, no, I'll play it safe and keep my possessions for now. But my question to you is, was the rich young ruler actually playing it safe? There's something Jesus said in that interchange that's easy to pass over. He said, go sell all your stuff, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Next week, we're going to walk through a passage that reminds us that every treasure we have here on earth could quickly be gone. You know what your safest treasure is? It's that treasure in heaven. If this man was really playing it safe, he probably would have looked around and said, all right, me using my money to make myself happy is not a super safe bet. Have any of you ever noticed that your ability to make yourself happy, you're not super trustworthy with that? Like, I really thought this would work. I really thought this thing or this vacation or, or doing this, I really thought that would work. And it turned out I was wrong. God is a much wiser steward of what is going to bring us ultimate pleasure and reward. The safest bet from this man would have been to entrust his treasures to Jesus. And that's where we move closer to not just the sobering warning, but the staggering promise. Because the story isn't done yet. Peter pipes up, as he usually does, 
And Peter says, we, speaking of the 12 right there, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? To which Jesus immediately responded and said, Peter, how dare you think of reward following me as its own reward? Right? No, not right. Sometimes we are harsher with ourselves than Jesus is. Sometimes we're like, oh, I shouldn't be thinking of the whole idea of reward. Guess what? Jesus wants you to be thinking about the whole idea of reward. He doesn't say to Peter, how dare you talk about reward? He says, valid question. Let me answer it. Starting in verse 28. Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when Jesus comes back and brings about the new earth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he, gives a great, he gives an amazing promise to Peter. All right, Peter, you and your friends, you've left behind the fishing uh, trade right now. You've left behind Matthew, left behind the tax collector's booth. Now you're sort of outcast with the Jews. You're losing some stuff now. You're going to be sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Which just as a side note, some of you right now are like, 12 thrones? What about Judas? Judas isn't going to be one of those 12. And people debate. They're like, all right, in Acts, there was this guy that took over for Judas named Matthias. Or maybe it's the Apostle Paul. I'm just going to say this is way above my pay grade. I don't think we need to solve this right now. I think we can get the point. Jesus is saying it is going to more than pay off, which is great for Peter and his friends. But what about the rest of us? Verse 29, Jesus talks about the rest of us. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And just by the way, I'm not going to get way into it just because of time. Verse 30, here's all I want to say about it. When you read that, you think you know what it means, you probably don't. Let me give you a great thing to do to throw a fun twist into your Super Bowl party later today. Get everybody together and read the next passage right after this, the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 20. You guys will all be mad at Jesus. You'll be wrestling with things. It's the most infuriating parable he ever gave. So if you really want to have a fun Super Bowl party, right before halftime, throw that into the mix. Or, you know, there's still like four hours till the Super Bowl, so you have time. But here's the point. Jesus says, all of you, all of you are going to get back a hundred what you left behind. In this passage, we get the sobering warning. You know what? These temporary riches that we like so much, they're a threat to us experiencing all that God has for us in Jesus. But we also get the staggering promise that no one will ever regret a sacrifice made for Jesus. That 10%, that 5%, whatever you're giving, whatever you're sacrificing, whatever following Jesus costs you, you will never regret that sacrifice. And and I know we're kind of itching. We're like, well, I want to get more specific. What are the rewards? What is the hundredfold? What does all this mean? And in general, in the New Testament, it's a little bit vague about getting specific about what it looks like to receive these rewards. But the rewards typically relate to our capacity to have full joy in the end. Now and in the future, which some of you might be thinking, wait a second, are you saying in heaven some people are going to be happier than others? 
because if somebody was happier than me, I think my happiness would go down and I wouldn't be so happy. So maybe I'd be jealous of them. Are you saying in heaven some people are happier than others? Here's the illustration that some people have given that I think is probably a good illustration. It said it's not that some people's cups of joy are completely full and other people's cups of joy are partway full. It said everybody's capacity for joy, everybody's cup for joy is completely full, but the reward is that some people's cups are bigger than others. The ultimate point is that no sacrifice made for Jesus goes unrewarded. In fact, he gets specific enough to say a hundredfold. And I know when we start to talk about giving financially, we, we get into the percentages and we're like, all right, you know, Dan talked about 10%. Do I have to give 10%? Here's the answer. No, you don't have to give 10%. There's no rule in the Bible. We're not going to track you down. You don't have to give 10%. But imagine that a wealthy investor came to you and said, all right, here's the deal. I am going to promise you a 100-fold return on an investment. Every dollar that you give me in two years, for every dollar you give me, you'll get $100. That is my guarantee at the end of two years, every dollar you give me, you're going to get $100. If you came back to that man and said, is it okay if we just do 10%? What's he going to say? He's going to say, well, sure, you can just give 10%, but are you sure that's all you want to give? For some of you right now, 10%, you're just like, that's a pipe dream right now. I can't even think about that. Right now I'm thinking, can I afford $20 a month? If you go back to the man with the hundredfold and say, is it okay if I just give $20 a month? You know what the answer is? Yeah, you can give just $20 a month. That's all that you're getting the return on. What really most of us would be doing in that situation is we would be looking at our money and saying, how do we squeeze every dollar that we can give in that direction so that we can get the return? So you know what? There's this vacation. We really want to go on it. But man, if we don't go on that vacation, just think of all the money that we could give to get that kind of return. And you know what? We have nice cars, but what if we just kind of did cars that aren't quite as good? We sell these cars, we get cars that just kind of get the job done, and the difference there, we get to give, and we get back a hundredfold. And maybe we're looking at our house and saying, all right, this is fine, but if we downsize, just think we could give more that would come back a hundredfold. Meanwhile, we come to Jesus and we say, is it okay if I only give 1%? Yes, it's okay. In fact, if you're giving nothing right now, maybe you should just start at 1%. But think of what you're saying to Jesus. What you're saying to Jesus is, is it okay if I only get the reward on a little bit of stuff? If you were coming back to this investor and saying, we're just going to give you a little bit, you know what that would probably mean? It would probably mean that you don't trust him. It would probably mean that you think he can't pull it off, that he's lying or that he's just incapable. And what I wonder with all of us is with our stinginess, with our money, with our lack of giving, some of it may be tied to a unique situation. Some of it might be tied to financial mishandling that we need to fix. But I think at the core, it's tied to the idea that we look at Jesus' promise right here and we say, I just don't trust him to make it worth my while. I'd rather play it safe and be in control of my treasure right now. And when we do that, we are not playing it safe because the reward that we're able to earn for ourselves is going to pay.
pale in comparison to the reward that's promised for us in Jesus. No one will ever regret a sacrifice made for Jesus. This is ultimately a hard issue. And so here's what I want to do. I want to invite you right now, I want to invite everybody, just bow your heads, and we're going to have about a quiet minute. In a minute, the band is going to come out. They're going to lead us in a song that is just very appropriate for us to respond to. But before that, we're just going to take a minute of quietness to bring our hearts before the Lord. And here's what I want to ask you to bring to the Lord right now. Um, try not to get caught. All right, we've we got to do 10%. We've got to do 15%. What I want you to ask the Lord is to give you leading and courage in what it looks like for you to take the next step of faith, the next step of obedience, and for Him to supply the courage and the strength to trust Him with that next step of obedience.